Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. was a track from the patchwork library that was east africa and i'm very pleased to say uh we are joined in the studio by a very special guest welcome bj cole thank you nice to be here good afternoon um i thought it'd be nice to have you on because you've got a, such a long varied uh career and a lot a lot like uh, many of the guys that uh, had composed for kpm throughout the years you've got a long history of session work um uh, playing with a lot of the guys that played and did records for KPM as well. And, you know, you can kind of plot your history alongside many, many of the guys. Um, That's all right. And also talking about, you know, we'll sort of come full full circle right to the, the present day uh, at the end and talk about a record that, that you've made, which is for library use as well. So, so it fits in perfectly mm-hmm. with the it's show. It's taken me this long to get around <laughs> to doing yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> um but let's start at the very beginning. So let's talk about, you know, what was it that, that got you hooked into music? I've read that it was um, The Shadows initially. that had kind Initially, of yes. In, well, yeah. back in the early 60s, uh, The Shadows um, affected the whole generation. You know, before The Beatles came along and The Stones came along, it was The Shadows, you know, and they motivated kids in school to, to, uh, to uh, uh, form... Shadows groups, you know, they learn guitars and they play on the uh, the school stage, uh, and they'd be playing for the kids in the school for their contemporaries, and it was just fantastic. It was just beginning to happen all that in mm-hmm. the early sixties, late fifties, early sixties, um, and I was lucky enough to be in that generation that, you know, got bitten by the bug, same as Jimmy Page and that whole ge- that whole generation basically mm. I'm, I'm one of them but i then went on to uh, uh discover the pedal steel guitar or steel guitar in the wider sense um so i didn't stay with guitar like most of them did and they mm. created careers but my career has been off at a tangent slightly you know mm. uh trying to open up awareness of the steel guitar in all its forms and what was it that took you away from I guess the traditional guitar to to taking up the uh... the sound of it, mm-hmm. um, the lyrical quality of the steel guitar. Uh, I suddenly realised that Hank Marvin had been listening to this music like that, the steel guitar, um, and 
primarily through the work of a duo called Santo and Johnny, who made lots of easy listening albums uh, in the 60s. But in the early 60s, they came up with a few hits, most notably Sleepwalk, which um, I discover was the, the most covered instrumental single mm. of all time. Um, and that record just affected me so much, as well as many other eminent musicians that I've come across over the years. You know, that mm. record m means a great deal. I mean, I heard Bruce Welsh on, on the radio once talking about what was his favourite song he wished he'd written, and it was Sleepwalk. Wow. That's a good point to listen to the track. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You were just saying that you've uh, you've had to cover that that song a few times, notably I've on the. I've had to cover it, yes, uh, because people, for one reason or another, couldn't get the rights to use the original, uh, and I uh, I was asked to do a cover of it for Twelve Monkeys, the movie, mm. the Terry Gilliam movie. Um, they they play it at the on the end titles, I think it is. Uh, that's my version, not not Santo Farina. <laughs> Um, and so let's talk about the instrument. So I, I think the first, is it the first instrument you bought uh, in this field was a Fender 1000? Well, right? the first pedal steel yeah. I got. I got. I had a few lap steels, which mm -hmm. is essentially a, like a plank with six or eight strings on uh, and, 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 and volume and tone controls. And it's very simple. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a very simple amplified electric instrument that actually predates the regular guitar they were mm. manufactured back in the 30s before the the electric guitar became uh common you know wow. it was rock and roll that really made that popularized the electric guitar mm -hmm. yeah um and so I mean, it's probably good to talk about the differences between pedal uh okay. lap and dobro guitar which which you play as well yeah, and so yeah. So the pedal pedal steel is it's it's on a plank as well, but has yeah. the pedals underneath. That's right. right, and that does the, the mm. sort of tremolo. So like you're bending a string as you would on the on a guitar. Is that is that how that works? Uh, yes, it's, it, I have to. There are certain uh, formats I have to put. You know, I have I, ways to communicate this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the lap steel that is the the, the steel guitar minus. Um, pedals uh, is like a Hawaiian guitar, essentially mm -hmm. an amplified Hawaiian guitar, um, and the strings are a fixed tuning, you know, mm -hmm. major chord or a sixth chord or something simple. Anyway, uh, and a pedal steel, uh, you've got a mechanism in there, uh, which was developed in the 30s and 40s by a number of innovators in America, uh, where individual strings can be raised or lowered by pedals or knee levers and you combine all these to create a lot of different changes um so you're raising and lowering certain strings mm. when you're leaving other strings static or t 
making them go the other way even you know so you're changing the internal voicing of the of the tuning the chord that mm. is it is tuned to a chord you change the internal voicing and when you slide up and down you can change the internal voicing of the chord there's no other instrument on you can do that on no one mm. instrument obviously you can do it in a string quartet or in a vocal arrangement but no one instrument with a pair of hands can do that mm. so it's it's unique in that sense uh, and it's nothing and the steel guitar in that sense is nothing to do with the national steel guitar that is the acoustic metal bodied instrument that M mark knopfler plays and many other blues musicians it became popular with blues musicians essentially back in the early days before there was any form of electric ampl amplification mm. And so with the, you said that there's, uh, there's pedals and uh, knee, uh, op knee operated. Ones. Yeah. So it's, and you're do you're sort of moving your legs up and down as, as you go. Yes. It's almost like you're, you're walking with yes. the music at the it's same time. It's a third time. dimension of playing. Mm. You've got your left hand that's sliding the, the bar up and down the strings, the slide. You're picking the strings like you do on a guitar with your right hand. And at the same time, you're operating these pedals to change the voicing of the chord. A bit like a harp. Mm -hmm. A harp, obviously, is changing scales and modes, uh, whereas the pedal steel is ch changing one, the, the, as I say, the voicing of the chord that it, the, the instrument is tuned to. Mm. Um, and so by taking that up, I guess, you know, you became quite a, a unique musician around at that time there were a few mm. but you know i could count them on the number of worthy musicians that were around in the 60s of the steel guitar on two hands i'd say mm -hmm. you know there was there's, there was a few, i know all the guys that were around in this country at the time mm. uh, most notably a guy called gordon huntley who'd mm -hmm. been around since the 50s and um, had played with felix mendelssohn's hawaiian serenaders and he he also played on an Elton John record, same mm. as me. And so, where what was your route into into sort of playing with bands? I guess you know how how did that come about? Uh, I started out by doing what is you know the most obvious thing to do when you learn a steel guitar, look, try and join a country band. Mm -hmm. And there was a circuit of country bands, both British and Irish. Uh, working in the Fuller's pub circuit in West London. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I got together with a singer. I advertised in the Melody Maker for a country singer and found somebody who I got to know. And we started a band and started to do gigs in, in on the West London Fuller's circuit, you know, the Clarendon and the Red Cow and many of the pubs that have gone now. Mm. Um, so I did that for about three years. And then connections led to connections, and I got headhunted by um, Chris Dreyer of the Yardbirds uh, for a sort of um, because there was a plan to put together a sort of British Flying Burrito Brothers mm -hmm. band, uh, and that all happened. And then it fell apart, like these things do. And one of the members, a singer called Stuart Brown, uh, kept in touch with me and. Um, about a year later, this is about 69, 68, no, 68, um, 
uh, he called me up and said he's putting to- a band together uh, called Cochise. Oh, that's what it became eventually, mm-hmm. the name of the band. Um, um, and he asked me to come and join them. So this was my my in to the uh, sharp end of the music industry because the people in co- that be- were in Cochise when it was fully properly formed, uh, the rhythm section had been playing with Joker's Wild with Dave Gilmore, mm. and the guitarist uh, Mick Grabham had been in a band called Plastic Penny, who were signed to Dick James Music. And Dick James Music had a demo studio, which is famous, notorious, for turning out the Trogs tape, if I, you know that. Mm. <laughs> yes. uh, and it was uh, it was largely run by a guy called Clive Franks, who was Elton John's front of house engineer for many years. Mm. Nice guy, but you know, he was very uh, he would play tricks in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I got to know all those people, and obviously Rage was wandering around the corridors at the time, you know, mm. and I got to know all these people, and um, so you know, I, I became just the music industry back then was very clo- very close. It was very small. You know, there were a lot of people in it, mm. but everybody connected with everybody pretty much back in the late 60s um and so i got to know everybody and the people in cochise i mean cochise didn't really go many places we did three albums for united artists for andrew lauder and which was great um but it was mainly the fact that i met all these people you know through that dave gilmore through my rhythm section steve marriott I work with extensively on a couple of um, Humble Pie records. Mm. It's one of my um, most, uh, one of my great moments working with Steve Marriott. He was very, very, very special. Mm. You know, when he was on his on the case, that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, lovely guy. Mm. Deeply lovely guy. Let's let's take a listen to. I've got a couple of Coaches tracks to play. Okay. Oh, um, wow. So we're going to listen to something from the first album. Uh, first yeah. up, this is Velvet Mountain. Cruelly underplayed, <laughs> that band. <laughs> Velvet Mountains and Strange Images from uh, from Cochise there. Yes, from the first Cochise album and the second Cochise album. Um, that's right, I remember. Yeah. Weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not country music as far as I'm concerned, you know. Maybe the first track is a bit, you know, a bit sort of cod British style country music. Mm. But the second track is, as you say, a bit baroque, if anything. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, sort of Baroque, it's almost psychedelic Baroque, but with pedal steel, which yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's. That's where I was at, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Trying to get as far away from every, every you know, every, every, all the other stereotypes as possible, really, or mix them all up, you know, mm. because I was so excited and passionate about music. I just wanted to try everything on a pedal steel. Uh, and that leads us nicely into what was your first solo record 
um, the new hovering dog, which was uh, in the 19... new hovering dog. Yes, that's a very interesting. I mean, from a practical point of view, as far as Andrew Lauder was concerned, uh, Cochise had done three albums, and we then broke up, as groups did back then. I, I mean, we did three records, which is pretty good. Uh, so Andrew came to me and said, uh, "We we need you to make another record. There's another record required by the contract, and uh, we'd like you to." make a solo record please mm. um which is, i thought wow this is amazing and i had all this stuff you know that i'd been writing and developing that didn't really suit cochise because it was a bit too experimental in one form or another a lot of poetry was involved mm. and um uh classical styled pieces um and I had a VCS3 synthesizer as well, so I was well into modulating the, the, the pedal steel through the VCS3 synthesizer and things like that. So I was into a lot of weirdness, as, amongst other things. Um, uh, and so I, I thought, right, this is an opportunity to... The song-based structures that I had, that I wanted to do, I thought, well, I've got a budget here. I'll get you know some really good people in on this record. Danny mm. Thompson... Uh, Francis Monkman from Curved Air, mm. uh, Mike Giles from um, King Crimson, um, a guy called Graham Prescott, who I'm sure you're aware of. He's, He's done a lot with KPM. Yes. Yeah, that's right. He yeah. has. Yes. Yeah. Well, he I knew him very well at the time. Robert Kirby, who did all the strings for Nick Drake, mm. so he did the strings on that record too. So you know, from a from a, a retrospective point of view, it's it's a pretty impressive record. You know, just from the names of the time, mm. um, and I love that record. You know, and it's—I take great pride in saying it's unlike anything. You know, it could be thought of as a bit prog, and but it's not really prog. It's not got a rhythm section like prog. Mm. Um, uh, it's a bit baroque again because I've obviously got a thing about baroque. <laughs> um, uh, it's a bit. There's a bit of synthesizer weirdness going on here and there. As a country track, which is a John Hartford song mm -hmm. called Up on the Hill where they do the boogie, uh, just to uh, um, prove that I can do a traditional country song mm -hmm. as well. So I just wanted to, you know, just wanted to weird people out, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the opportunity to do, do so. <laughs> and these things become collector's items, you know. Yes, yeah, you know, they get written about in yeah. Yeah, on, on blogs, in books, yeah. about, you know... In lost... Record Collector. Yeah, exactly. In fact, there's a new piece about me in Record Collector this this month. There you go. There's a plug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, let's have a listen. I'm going to take a listen to the track. Uh, now you see them, now you don't. Oh, my goodness, right. Yeah, OK. <laughs> world of your uh, uh, your solo record uh, yeah you obviously like the more psychedelic end of <laughs> yeah. what i was doing back then <laughs> um but yeah we're just saying that it's it has that sort of canterbury scene feel mm -hmm. um but also similar to sort of the pre king crimson the sort of giles fripp and mcfarlane was it that sort of trio that they mm. had where it's sort of like you say mixing baroque with something else yeah. with something else they, they weren't that the lineup 
with Mike Giles and so forth. Mm. The tracks that uh, that they played on, on on the new Hovering Dog weren't on that one. That was mm. done with another lineup, um, uh, and Graham Prescott on fiddle and other instruments, and Bill Lesage on piano. Mm. Another name from the past. Yeah, someone else who did a lot of KPM <laughs> as really, well. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, I guess, uh, sort of early 1970, or slightly before, I think it's 1968 is when you started doing sort of some session work and started working. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so how was how was the session, the, the sort of session work? Like, how did it, how did your day, what did your day look like when doing that? Because speaking to people like Alan Parker... Um, and Dave Richmond, is old Alan Parker. How is he? I haven't seen him. For he's years. good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's a lovely. He was a lovely man. I haven't seen him for years and years and years. Yeah, he's, really he nice. came on the show a couple yeah. of years ago. Oh, right. okay. to talk about his. Um, yeah. yeah, his experiences of, yeah. of being a, a session guy. Well, you, with those guys, people like him were working flat out all the time. Mm. I was never working flat out all the time, playing pedal steel exclusively. Mm. You know, you you know, if you got. A couple of sessions a week. That was that was busy, mm. you know, doing what I did. Mind you, I was doing other things as well, you know, mm-hmm. musically. Um, so I was never swept off my feet running around London to every studio. But then I worked in every studio at one time or another. Um, uh, it's uh, that's what I did pretty much, you know. After once I. Um, got established on the scene. Can I talk about the Elton John record? Or were you going to having that one? Are you waiting? Are you holding? No, that you back? Can, no, you can. I think we'll, we'll we'll play we'll play a few things together. So I think oh, okay. the Elton John record. I think is it's sort of a very important part of your. It's crucial. Yeah, I tell you, uh, as time has gone on, from when I did it, when I went, that was fantastic. You know, old mates, lots of mates in the studio together. Uh, I've realised over the years, A, how big a record that is generally Mm. in the history of music, popular music, um, and how important it was for me in terms of establishing my session career. You know, Mm. it was... I knew all those people in the studio. And that record was done at Trident with everybody there, you know, including Gus Dudgeon and Robin Cable and Paul Buckmaster and... Everybody, everybody else. Sorry, I'm not in front of your microphone. Um, uh, and I, I, it was just fantastic. You know, it was just like one of those moments when you pinch yourself mm. and go, "I think I've made it now." You know, I think I got, you know, at least to start with, got got where I've been aiming at, and I've been lucky enough to to feel that a few times. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're going to talk about a few of those moments. I think. Yeah. yeah well, I think let's. Let's listen to the Alton track, and I think it's it's a, it's a it's a beautiful track. And like I actually played it a few a, a few oh. shows ago when we were, I was um, sort of mentioning you were c- coming on to the show, and it's one of those tracks where you know you can't you can't take the the guitar the, the pedal steel out without losing something. It, it's well, yes, I've got a couple of, the, of points about that. Mm. It's once the pedal steel comes in on the second verse, it's in all mm. the way through, either down a bit or up a bit. Um, and somebody put a tape. There, there was, there exists a tape of just Elton and piano voice and the pedal steel parts, and mm. it's on YouTube, mm. believe it or not. Um, so I found this. Somebody turned me on to this, and I had to listen to it. And I, 
that's what they've done. They've just sort of ridden the um, the fader on the pedal steel. They've not actually taken it out anywhere once it's in. Uh, and also, it's uh, it established that thing that I've is you know the bottom line of my career really in session work is that I'm playing pedal steel like Elton is singing. He's passionate about American music, but he can't. He isn't American, mm. so he plays it in his own way. And I'm passionate about pedal steel, which is American, but I can't play like Buddy Emmons or all those top guys in Nashville. So I play it in my own way. And I think that relative similarity has stood, stood, stood me instead all the way through my career, working with him and with Sting. And mm. they're all people that are interpreting American music mm. in a passionate way, you know. And I, I'm sort of... A, I'm the parallel element doing doing the steel guitar thing. You know? mm. Let's have a listen. This is <laughs> Tiny Dancer. Yeah. Very famous Elton John with Tiny Dancer, followed by the not-so-famous, sadly, Keith Cross and Peter Ross, um, mm. the Dead Salute from the album Board Civilians. Nice uh, to hear that again. Yeah, it's a really good record, and um, certainly the other band that Keith Cross was in, T2, the sort of harder, harder-edged sort of prog, prog rock band is, is interesting as well, and it's... Mm. Um, it's just worth revisiting the album. It's lovely. Yeah. Very just as melodic as as Elton, just not quite as epic with the strings and everything in there. Well, yeah. <laughs> one could have a discussion about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and so I was wondering, like, with the session work, you know, you're obviously you're generally taking around the kit with you, I guess, in terms yeah. of the pedal steel, because it yeah. was we had. Um, you, you may know her actually, um, a musician called Skylar Kanger mm -hmm. on the show. The harp, the harpist. Yes, yeah. and so it was interesting talking to her about the session work because obviously uh, taking a harp with you is not easy, and you've got to hope that there was one at the studio or there was, you know, it was something sorted. And so, you know, how was that for you in terms of having to set up and take everything and take everything away? And uh, not a problem, really. I mean. Tra driving around London and parking and all that, the practicalities were a lot easier back in the early 70s. Mm. You know, I could, really, like, if I'm going to Trident, I could park in Water Street overnight. Mm. You know, there wasn't a problem. And or working at Air Studios in Oxford Street, you know, in the o Oxford Circus, and you just park in the hatch bay at the back and leave it, leave the car there, mm. you know, because it wasn't like it is now. Um, so not uh, in a practical point of view, it was 
not really a hassle and there were plenty of car parks and they were certainly not expensive like they are now mm. um so the actual practicalities of it it's like the air studios in oxford circus as it was originally mm-hmm. um would seem to be the worst place to have a studio but it actually worked very well because you just got in the getting the loading bay at the back and got in the lift and you were up in the studio mm. great and so were you, were you generally would you just um receive a phone call to say can you can you come and do this yeah. this job and would you know what it what it was before going or would you well it it, it varied really sometimes i'd be working for fixers mm. like um what's his name dick katz um there were there were established fixers who've been going for decades mm-hmm. you know it was part of the tradition of how sessions were put on you know this you were on the books of the fixers you know and uh, they they get the musicians i mean obviously playing pedal steel they didn't really know the, the detail uh, who was good and who wasn't good and who was specialized for a certain thing so the uh, the artist or producer usually dictated whether they wanted me or somebody else or you know so uh, the fixers weren't so general in terms of the special the people that specialized Mm. but it was it was very established because there were so many sessions being recorded all the time it was massive you know people don't realize how ubiquitous making music was in london Mm. back then you know and do do you think it was uh beneficial or would you yeah was it a a a benefit or a hindrance that you were so specialized in terms of the pedal steel lap steel and and dobro i mean do you think that you got because you were probably one of very very few that could have got that work as opposed to being one of many session guitarists um but obviously it's an instrument that isn't or isn't needed isn't needed as frequently as guitar as well no no i didn't work as much as some of the top session guitarists like alan parker as we were mm. talking about or les hurdle or you know the space player and you know the, those session guys they were working flat out you know three sessions a day like in nashville was you know it's all similar sort of thing mm. i was never like that uh but you know uh, i was liked because people knew i was young and i was coming with a a different approach to the instrument and that and that there were lots of people that just like me yeah that liked me rather than one of the other guys you know and there were only a few other guys like gordon huntley who'd been around for a long time he was a master pedal steel player was mm. sort of godfather of pedal steel in the uk actually i'd say um uh pete wilshire uh, jerry hogan um who was with hogan's heroes albert lee mm. um <coughs> Uh, but that, you could say there was only really half a dozen of us playing playing sessions in mm. in, the, in the early seventies anyway, you know, maybe more later in the seventies. Um, uh, I was very lucky, you know. I I got the lion's share of the sessions in the seventies. There was very few other people that uh, competed with me directly. Mm. You know, there were people that had done lots of library albums. What's his name? Basil Hendricks. You know yeah. him. He did a lot of early stuff, and he's still about. You know, he's probably retired now, but he's mm. he's still about. Does does right off his the, the library albums he did back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're they're ubiquitous. They're stereotypical of what people imagine Hawaiian music is like. You know, mm. and he was very good at it. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, bizarrely, uh, a lot of the Hawaiian tracks that we have in the library that that are sort of similar to that sound, we've got some that were done by Dick Walter and um, Richard Don... Myhill, who I believe you played with as well. Yeah. Oh, oh yes, I've done things with um, uh, Don Sanford. Would he have been no. guitarist, steel guitar player, was around on the session scene at that time? Unless he did it under a pseudonym, which no. a, lot, a lot of it, guys it, oh, did. I'm sure um, they did, yes. Yeah. I'm sure they did. And there was a Dutch guy. Without Stainhouse. Oh, that rings a bell, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, all of their music just got used on um, yeah. SpongeBob SquarePants, the cartoon. <laughs> oh, did they? Yeah. So <laughs> Some of the best-earning tracks we've in, got are uh, Right, those. OK. Well, they, they passed away, <laughs> most of these people now. You know. Yeah. Oh, they got used for that, did they? I thought they were American players who worked on no, that. No, a lot of it came out of the libraries. Really? It's bizarre, yeah. Really? <laughs> well, I thought that was an American series. It is, it okay. is, yeah. But the, you'd the, think the, that they'd have a lot of stuff on file from America. Yeah, I think. How weird! They they lent very heavily okay. on the on the. I library. never knew that. <laughs> Fascinating. There's some good playing on there, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you'd only if you'd only yeah. got that library record. Yeah. <laughs> I did some stuff for Benny Hill. Oh really? Yeah, which mm. was uh, very well paid mm. because there were no um, buyouts back then. Mm. <laughs> so I was in Vision a few times on the Benny Hill show, and that that paid for years, mm. you know. That and there were some guys. Some of the Nashville guys did the theme tune for the Benny Hill show as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Charlie McCoy and all those guys. They did the theme tunes. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's listen to a couple more tracks okay. um, from your session work. So I was going to play a track by a band called Bloodstone. Oh right, um, which is. I get, it gives a different, uh, a soul different band, feel, yeah, yeah, a different feel to what yeah. you can do with the instrument. I haven't heard know. that for a while. Um, so we can listen to a track called "That's Not How It Goes." Yes, from uh, I need the album "I Need Time," and then we'll listen to some Walker Brothers. Oh, great. followed by No Regrets by the Walker Brothers, um, which uh, kind of takes your breath away, that track, a little oh, bit. I yeah. love that track. It's just such an amazing performance. He's such a staggering singer. Uh, you know, if I have to choose any singer ever that I've worked with, uh, he, it's Scott Walker, actually, I have to say. You know, mm. and I've worked with quite a lot of really good singers, you know, but there's something about Scott that... Is very special. He's mm. effortlessly natural. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have to work at it or practice or anything. You know, mm. he just comes out. You know, which is, I think, why eventually he had to try and justify himself so much. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, you know, it's interesting. We we were talking yeah. uh, during the song that, you know, the 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 music 
the backing is quite triumphant and, and mm. it's sort of marching, but his voice just never never leaves that understated tone. Mm. It's it's the same throughout, but mesmerising at the same time. And that's what makes it mesmerising, mm. I think. He's not screeching or shouting, he's just right back. You know, mm. Incredible. Makes it that much more powerful. Mm. Um Another performer that I wanted to I wanted to ask you about was um, in I think it's 1976 you played on the Joan Armour Trading album, yeah, um, on on the track Down to Down, Zero. That's which, right, which was a very big hit at the time. It was. Um, and what what do you remember of that of that session? Uh, big room at Olympic Studios, probably one of my favourite studios ever. Mm. It was the way they took that away. I have no idea. It was just such the most fantastic room. So many good records have been made in that room. Um, uh, it was just the one song that I worked on from the album. Um, Glyn Johns produced it, um, and I just played really just odd little bits through the track and the solo. You know, mm. uh, and that was it. You know, it didn't seem like any big deal at the time. You know just a great song you know it's the song that gives it its visibility you know mm. by the contributions it's same as no regrets you know a great song mm. you know it's down to the song as as always um don't remember too much else about it i worked with glenn quite quite a lot actually around that mm. that time probably earlier than that as well with humble pie and with um all sorts of things actually andy fell with a low also with glenn you know mm. quite a long time we, we work together a lot. Um, and then after that, I was going to play Jerry Rafferty, mm. uh, take a listen to Right Down the Line, which, yeah. again, another very big hit and, and was the bigger hit in America. It was over, the single in America, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. Over Baker Street, which is much was, seemingly more well-known here than it is in, Baker in Street the was States. the single here, mm. yeah. Um, Understandably. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and you know that's that's another great record. Jerry Rafferty is one of those songwriters that he's often it was his masterpiece. And... That record. Mm. I mean, he made a lot of very good records, you know, before and after that. Mm. Um, but that was his greatest album, I think, of songs. Mm. You know, uh, just amazing. Right down the line, really a great a great track. And I still people still pick me up on it in America because it's quite a high profile record in America. Mm. Even still, yeah. Well, let's take a listen to let's have Joan first and then Jerry straight after. <laughs> Jerry Rafferty there to another two big big songs I know I'm <laughs> what can I say <laughs> I happen to be there at the time you know <laughs> um 
sort of moving forward into the into the eighties, obviously, you know, music changed drastically um, towards the end of the 70s yeah 76 onwards is when i didn't do so many sessions in the late 70s because the synthesizer came along and Mm. uh, sort of mopped up the role of an unusual instrument to add to the mix if you see what i mean Mm. so the pedals instruments like pedal steel weren't used as much because the synthesizer was coming along and providing that you know that role in mm. on, on records on hit records yeah and i think at the same time it felt like the the music industry was was changing in a way that there were independent labels now starting with you know independent artists and so although the sort of you know the synthesizer made its way into big musicians big big singles etc there was this new opening and it seemed that that's then where you you then sort of found another path. So working with bands like Everything But the Girl in the mm. sort of the early early eighties, and then going well, on sessions came back actually. Mm. You know, after people had explored the early synthesizer uh, influence and sounds, uh, people started to want me to come. You know, back again and sort of thing. I'd worked with Shaking Stevens quite a lot, for instance, mm. in the early eighties and. Uh, um, uh, and with um, uh, David Sylvian, yes, lovely yeah. record. You know, Gone to Earth. I've worked on that. Mm. Fantastic record. You know, really, he was a great, great performer. An- another in the in the Scott Walker school. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that was a great work- record to work on. Mm. Um, and then that you know it kind of led through to the Stranglers too. That's true. You have Dream Dreamtime. I think mm, yeah. that album. Yeah, yeah. Great band. I love. I still love uh, you know, Stranglers. I think they're mm. they're one of the great British bands to me. They're underrated. Yeah, definitely, definitely. They had they were. I think they were kind of sh- partly shunned by the punk scene because they were too good at playing. Well, they were they weren't really <laughs> only punk, mm. and they were but they were a bit prog as well because the keyboard player was more of a prog keyboard player. Mm. You know, so they they had their chops about them. You know, they knew mm. what they were doing, and they still do. It was John Jacques Burnell, one of the great bass sounds in in rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next song I wanted to play is one that uh, it's from 1981, uh, and it's by an artist called Melvin Ukachi. Mm. Um, track's called "This Is the Living," and again, it's um, it's showing a very different side to what you can do with the instrument because it's a totally different record to everything else that we've mm. we've listened to. Um, and I'm going to have to chase this up because I don't remember it. At <laughs> yeah, <all>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll see if you remember it when it when it kicks in. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then and then we'll sort of we're going to skip forward a few years from then on. Um, but let's let's take a listen to this yeah. this track. Okay. <laughs> Very different sound. Um, a pop version of a, a Nigerian style of music called Juju mm. uh, that was most famously played by a guy called King Sunny Day. Mm. And he had a steel guitar player 
In fact, he bought one of my steel guitars, the, the steel oh, really? guitar player. Yeah, took it back to Nigeria, a uh, pedal steel. Mm. Uh, they featured pedal steel in this Nigerian style of music. One of the few times that steel guitar has gone into African music, and mm. uh, that's the sort of pop version of what King Sunny Day does. Mm. Um, and it was very big in the early eighties. Yeah, so yeah, I, I do fantastic. remember it. Yeah, uh, I don't. How did it do? I mean, I don't know anything about its. I don't know. Uh, profile no uh, it's very much of that time it mm. wouldn't have happened at any other time but the early 80s mm. you know but it's certainly fun yes yes great record <laughs> lots of energy yeah it's it's uh it just it's just willing the sunshine yeah but unfortunately well <laughs> it's, it's not here yet <laughs> no no we're stuck with this yeah. for the moment i think yeah um Let's jump forward a few years. I want to skip to the the sort of mid mid to late nineties because there's two um, two performances in particular I wanted to talk about, and so it's um, later with Jules Holland, hmm. which you um, you were sort of brought in to perform with both REM in ninety eight um, and with Bjork in ninety five. Hmm. Um, oh. You know, where do you want me to start? <laughs> yeah. uh, big subjects, both of them. Mm. You know, uh, fas fascinating stuff. The nineties, I was working flat out because I'd toured with John Cale for about six years. Um, I was, and then uh, I, I was doing sessions. I was, you know, I made that album with Luke Viber. I, I, I joined, um, what's it? Um, Richard Ashcroft's band. Oh, The Verve. The Verve. Yes. I joined The Verve because, you know, they had... I'd worked on um, uh, the Spiritualized record, Ladies mm. and Gentlemen record, and through that I was recommended for The Verve gig, and so we did a big American tour with The Verve, and while I was over there, um, I met uh, R.E.M., because mm. they were mates of certain members of uh, The Verve. And uh, they asked me to come and accompany uh, them when they came over to the UK to do some promotional dates. Mm. I didn't actually record with the band in the studio, I, but we end, uh, ended up doing that that um, George Holland performance, which mm. was just magical, really amazing. You know, they were what a bunch of nice guys, fans like all the great bands, fans, mm -hmm. passionate fans of what they do, and and Michael Stipe was just incredible. I just thought he was one of my favourite frontmen, you know, in a band. Really, you know, intellectually in interesting and you know committed to what he was doing. You know, really mm -hmm. very special band to work with. Very, another great moment in my career. Mm -hmm. Um. And then, and uh, earlier than that was when you worked with Bjork in ninety five. Ah, right, yes, as yeah. Well, well that so. was that was. I don't know quite where that came from, but that came out of the blue a bit. Mm. Um, Nelly Hooper, who produced it, um, rang me up and wanted me to come and play on a track on her second album, the post mm. album, uh, and it was with um, on possibly maybe the track, yeah. which is you know, all of the tracks on that album are iconic. You know, they're just mm. she was so unusual so different i mean i'd worked in iceland with various people at different times um and uh she just came out of nowhere you know just extraordinary i mean mm. i actually heard a, an album she did a sort of jazz album before she was discovered that was really quite interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know these these are all I'm, i've been so lucky working in a career like this you know because every 
job, quite a lot of jobs back then were, you know, just events, you know, stories that where it took me into an area that I'd never, never touched before, especially mm. the birth. Yeah. Let's take a listen. And John Cale. Oh, yes. <laughs> There's another story, several stories. <laughs> uh, well, let's have a listen to, um, to both those performances. Yeah. Right. tingling <laughs> spine tingling yes it's a lot longer than the single the, um, the recorded <laughs> version i know i know that um it's, it's amazing it's unlike anything else isn't it she's, uh, she's quite a unique artist yeah really yeah. nice person too very grounded mm. um let's come full circle again now so we began talking about about just you we've circled around sort of many uh your sort of early records into session work and we sort of touched upon it um, just then. You were talking about the work you did with Luke Vibert, and you've, you've sort of had another sort of round of sort of solo albums um, in the sort of from I think nineteen was it nineteen eighty nine? You did Transparent Music, and then... I did. Yeah, that was an important one for me. Yeah, mm. I think. Um, and then you know you work with Luke Vibert, which is sort of this pedal steel with electronic music and, mm -hmm. and marrying the two, which is a very sort of unique way of um uh of portraying the instrument i guess in a, in a I, different I, I was, different light well first of all i was introduced to luke through um a guy called david toop yes a writer about music and mm. he said you should you know i wanted to work with djs probably started by starting by jamming with them and with decks and things like that because i everybody was going well you know they're not really musicians are they these djs and i'm going i'm listening to a lot of this stuff like luke viber or square pusher or these people and mm. then I think i'm going these guys know a lot you know but it's just that their priorities are different from a, a mm. performance musician um, and, and I just was fascinated by the idea of interacting with one of these guys. And David put me in touch with a few, uh, a few people mm. like Luke and uh, Luke Viber and um, Square Pusher and and Aphex Twin and all those. You know, the the cream of the guys. Mm. And I was lucky enough to meet Luke, and he was big on Exotica at the time. Yes. Uh, very big on Exotica. And, you know, the idea of me, him working with me where I could provide him with an infinite supply of samples, <laughs> <laughs> you know, r rather than digging into records and taking bits off records, he, mm. he actually had a musician in front of him who could provide him with that vocabulary, you know. So that's why we started working together. And then eventually we started doing weirder and weirder stuff. Mm. Um, and... We turned it full circle where I was doing, you know, all sorts of beats with him, you know, playing on some acid stuff. And, you know, on that record, um, um, 
Stop the Panic, you know, that was mm. on Cooking Vinyl, and that was a good good record. It did very well for me, that record. Mm. It did quite a lot more than most records do now, back mm. back in the 2000. You know, that did very well, and we toured together quite a lot as well, you know, doing playing live dates and doing industrial sets, you know, and <laughs> it was incredible, actually, mm. playing pedal steel with a, with a DJ who was just jamming yeah. pretty much. And just incredible, you know. We did a gig at the Spitz, which is a long gone venue yes, in Spitalfields, Spitz. Yeah. And, uh, and it was just incredible. And we had a percussionist with us as well, so we had a tabla player doing the beats and you know, accompanying the beats, and just it was just fantastic. And I thought, this is really going somewhere new, you know. Really, mm. and working with Luke, who was a very inspiring in terms of his ideas, mm. and still is actually. Um, so that was very special working with, you know, working with him. Uh, unfortunately, I, I thought that whole area of live performance, drum and bass, or whatever you might call it, you know, exotica, electronica, mm. uh, w was going to continue, and it didn't really. The audience for it didn't hang around. You know, they went back into the clubs and just got in there and got mindless you know so mm. lost that special you know the performance passion that that we were starting to develop with that record you know it didn't go where i would like to it, it to have gone you know mm. sometimes this happens you know i'm still totally pleased that's one of my favorite projects that i've been involved with that record mm. very special record Let's have a we'll have a listen to a bit of one of the tracks. Yeah. Um, just okay. mindful of time because I want to talk about a, a recent uh, project yeah, you've done in do. connection with us as well. Yeah, yeah, so let's fine. Yeah, let's listen to a bit of um, songs of the nightlife. Oh, from the Luke Viber records fantastic very very sort of jaunty and bouncy but yeah, uh, did quite well sonically interesting as well single. Um, so lastly before before the end of the show I wanted to speak to you about there's a, a record that you've you've produced for for library use basically yeah. and um, you know it, it's a great record very it just shows off the sort of cinematic quality of of the pedal steel um, and I think, you know, certainly you start to hear things, uh, that instrument, a lot more in, in, I guess, documentaries are using it a lot more. Um, I hear it as an orchestral instrument myself, mm. essentially, cause it's, because as a, we were describing how it works earlier on. And it, it, it is very similar to a string section or a, a choral set, uh, arrangement, you know, mm. it works in a similar way. It may be a totally different sound that's quite stereotyped in many people's minds, mm. but essentially that's how it's working. Yeah, I think so. And yeah. I think, you know, it has a sound that it's, um, it's like panoramic, you know, yes. you, you, you can see big vistas um, that's right. uh, when, when listening to it. Cinematic and, even. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and so I, I you know, it, I think as as an album, it it just sounds fantastic. You know, it, it I think it's it's going to do well. Um, and um, I think it, you know, I think it'd be fantastic to listen to some of it. So I've got a track yeah. um, 
it's the the first one on the album actually blue mood which oh i love that really one. sets the Probably scene my for the favorite record too, yeah actually i can see i know why you picked that one. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, let's take a listen yeah 